0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. When it comes to screening for breast cancer, mammograms are still the gold standard for early detection. But changing guidelines and differing recommendations on when to start screening has caused confusion for many women.
2: Now, the American Society of Breast Surgeons has weighed in, calling for a risk assessment for all women over the age of 25.
1: On today's program, we'll discuss screening guidelines with a Mayo Clinic breast surgeon.
2: Also on the program, a rare brain disease, progressive supranuclear palsy.
1: And treatment for cancer of the esophagus.
2: That's this week's program, up next.
1: Breast Cancer. A disease many women fear more than any other, even though heart disease is the number one killer of both men and women. Nonetheless, breast cancer is fairly common. In fact, after skin cancer, breast cancer is the most common cancer diagnosed in the United States among women.
2: There have been significant advances in diagnosis and treatment of breast cancer over the past decades. Survival has increased and the number of deaths from breast cancer is steadily declining, and the surgery for breast cancer and reconstruction is better than ever. But there is still some controversy when it comes to mammography. Joining us in studio is Mayo Clinic breast cancer surgeon, Dr. Amy Degnum. Welcome to the program, Dr. Degnum. it's nice to meet you.
3: Hello, good to be with you.
1: Okay, Dr. Degnum, let's start out with a little controversy because I think the breast cancer surgeons in this country or maybe even the world, just add a little fuel to the mammogram controversy fire.
3: Right, they definitely did. So I think this really initially ignited uh, back in 2016 when the United States uh, Preventive Task Force uh, Service issued guidelines to suggest that mammography maybe did not need to be be done every year starting at age 40 and that instead that really could be started at age 50 and only be performed every other year instead of every year. And that generated quite a bit of um, media coverage and controversy. Uh, And in response to that, then the American Cancer Society uh, reviewed their policy and issued an update. And they kind of came in with an intermediate position recommending starting screening uh, at age 45. Uh, And now the American Society of Breast Surgeons has reviewed data and issued a new guideline as well. So what's different about the American Society of Breast Surgeons guideline is that it specifically advocates for risk-based screening, saying that we're not going to screen everyone the same way. We're going to start by assessing a woman's risk, and the higher risk women would get a more intensive screening approach, and the lower risk women would get an average sc- risk screening approach.
1: That makes a lot of
3: sense, doesn't makes it? Makes a lot
2: of sense because what some people think, I mean, there was a lot of confusion with that. You know, should I start at 40, do I wait until 50? And if the answer is, well, it depends, that made confusion for people. But if you explain why it depends, I think it makes more
3: sense. Right, well, we know that doing screening mammograms does have some risk in the sense that there's a small amount of radiation delivered. And in addition to that, the, the point of screening is to, potentially find something and evaluate it with a biopsy but many of those biopsies can be benign so we are you know having a a substantial number of women then have a biopsy that turns out to be benign but they have the anxiety uh, associated with that and uh, you know the the pain of the procedure even though it is a minor procedure uh, and and they could have a small complication such as some localized bleeding or a very rare chance of an infection. So for those reasons we have to remember that uh, mammography does have some risks although they are limited and we have to weigh that against the potential benefits of catching a cancer at an early stage when it is more treatable.
1: Now when should a woman do this risk uh, assessment? So and how do you do it?
3: What the American Society of Breast Surgeons is recommending is a risk assessment for women starting at the age of 25. And essentially, it, it consists of a good history uh, asking women about their risk factors for breast cancer. And in those early younger years, we're really looking for the biggest risk factors. The first one would be a genetic predisposition or Uh, A genetic mutation that is passed down in a family that would increase a person's risk and the two most common mutations that are known of right now are BRCA1 and BRCA2 but there are other genetic mutations that can also increase breast cancer risk but we screen for those just by asking a woman does she have a history of breast cancer in her family does she have a history of other uh, family members who had ovarian cancer uh, or other malignancies, you know, tumors in the family. Uh, And by taking that history, we get some sense of whether there would be a chance of one of these mutations running in the family that would tell us that person definitely has an increased risk. And genetic testing would be something that women might choose to do. If they choose not to do genetic testing, we still know, just based on their family history, some information about what their risk would be for a breast cancer. So that is probably the biggest driving factor to assess risk in a younger woman. Uh, other less common uh, scenarios would be uh, if a woman has had prior chest radiation uh, between the ages of 10 and 30, usually that would occur for a lymphoma treatment, uh, which go. is also That's rare. Tracy. That's me, yeah. And, and the third potential factor uh, factor that would drive an increased risk would be if a woman has had a biopsy that showed some abnormal findings such as atypical hyperplasia or something called lobular carcinoma in situ, which is not truly a cancer, uh, but a a risk marker uh, for potential increased risk of cancer in the future. So those would be the major things that we would be screening for just with a history Uh, talking to women in those earlier, younger age groups about their cancer risk.
1: Now, there are mammograms and there are mammograms, and I think you also recommended that uh, women have a 3D mammogram. Is that pretty standard now? Do do most clinics have a 3D mammogram or tomosynthesis, I think it's also called? It is
3: pretty standard, yes. So tomosynthesis mammography and 3D mammography really mean the same thing. And what it does is it allows the radiologist to see several different pictures of the breast instead of just a single uh, picture from each view of the breast. So they can get more information about potentially what is on the inside of the breast tissue.
2: And that's especially good if you have dense breasts.
3: It is better if you have dense breasts.
2: And are
1: are there other studies that you might want to do if you do have dense breasts other than an addition to or instead of three-day mammography?
3: Sure. So uh, the guidelines that the American Society of Breast Surgeons has recommended kind of divide women into two categories, women who have average risk and women who we know have an increased risk. Uh, If a woman has average risk, but on their mammogram they have high density, then it is recommended that they consider supplemental screening. If a woman is in that higher risk category due to other factors, such as a genetic mutation, a strong family history, uh, prior radiation, or one of these uh, biopsy you know, high-risk lesions, then they would be recommended to consider supplemental screening and start that at an earlier age.
1: And the other thing your group talked about was the fact that if a woman's expected survival is ten years or less, you can stop having mammograms. That makes sense to me too.
3: It does. Uh, the challenge there is that we still don't have the crystal ball of
1: <laughs> who knows <laughs> when.
3: When do we know that a woman is only going to live ten more years? Right. One
2: of the things I think is interesting, though, is um, instead of there being this guideline, you know, start at forty, it's more it's dependent on each person's situation and then does that give patients the feeling of a little bit more control or advocacy for their own health
3: we certainly hope so i mean that is the whole goal and was a driving factor in the u.s preventive task force recommendations that they wanted women to have a conversation with their provider to understand that there are some risks to mammography or some disadvantages of doing mammography very frequently and at a young age, and th- to be aware uh, of what those potential you know consequences are, and be doing their screening with purpose instead of just as a rote uh, practice.
1: All right. You know, it all makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, surgeons are smarter than we're sometimes given credit for. Let's face it. (laughs) You're you're on board with this. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Breast cancer. Mammograms are still the gold standard for detecting it early. Who's at increased risk? Well, it's worth doing a risk assessment when you're a young woman and then discussing with your doctor how often you should have the tests and when you should start having them. So let's talk about surgery. That's your uh, field of endeavor. Would you say that the majority of, of women who have breast cancer need surgery?
3: Yes. Currently, that is the status. Uh, certainly, there is research going forward to you know, continue to try to develop alternate therapies. Uh, but at the current time, yes, women who have breast cancer still need surgery as a component of their treatment.
1: And then how do you decide what surgery they need. How do you decide whether they, they need a lumpectomy, whether they need a mastectomy, whether they need a bilateral mastectomy? Tell us about that, how you go about that.
3: Sure. Well, sometimes it's an easy decision and sometimes it's a lot more complicated. Uh, it depends on the extent of the disease. If the disease is very extensive involving, you know, more than 50% of the breast, then there really is not usually an option to preserve the breast. Sometimes we can apply chemotherapy before surgery to try to shrink a tumor and make it smaller and more amenable to a lumpectomy. But sometimes the disease is just so extensive that a lumpectomy is not possible.
1: If you do a lumpectomy, you always follow that with radiation, right? Or sometimes you might do the radiation before.
3: Well, for invasive cancers, yes, we recommend a lumpectomy and then radiation afterwards. Um, There are some very unusual circumstances where we might recommend radiation first, but that is not the norm approach.
2: I know we've had uh, previous breast surgeons who are in and talk about you start the surgery and then you're sending it to the lab while the surgery is going on to make sure you've got those margins clear. That seems to make a lot of sense to me, but that must make the surgery a lot longer as well.
3: It does increase the surgery length a little bit, but it's, um, I think, more cost-effective overall and better for the patient to just have one surgery, and uh, we find that that's the best approach for patient care. So
2: you're doing that more often now?
3: It's routine to use frozen section evaluation in our practice at the Mayo Clinic.
1: And how do you decide whether or not you need to remove any or all lymph nodes?
3: So... Lymph node evaluation is recommended whenever the type of cancer is invasive, which which means it does have the ability to move throughout the body. And usually if it's going to spread, it will spread to the lymph nodes first. So that's why that's the best area to check to see if there's any evidence that the disease is starting to transfer. However, If a woman has a non-invasive cancer, something we call DCIS, which stands for ductal carcinoma in situ, then we do not need to evaluate lymph nodes.
1: Can you tell sometimes on uh, preoperative imaging whether or not the lymph nodes are involved or at least the image might suggest that they are?
3: Yes, if the image shows abnormally enlarged lymph nodes, that's a good sign, uh, or I shouldn't say a good sign, but a strong sign that the lymph nodes may be involved. However, if the lymph nodes appear normal on the imaging, it doesn't completely rule out that there still might be cancer cells in those lymph nodes that we could only see by looking with a microscope.
2: You know, I think uh, we talk so often about if the cancer has moved into the lymph nodes. um, For the layperson, why does it matter if it's in the lymph nodes?
3: It helps us to understand uh, what the likelihood is of the cancer being elsewhere. If it is in the lymph nodes, there's a higher chance that it might be present somewhere else in the body. And there's a higher chance that the cancer might return in the future. And so that helps us to determine what other treatments we should be providing to that patient. Uh, For cancer that's in the lymph nodes, we are likely to be more uh, aggressive or intensive with our therapies because of that higher risk of cancer spread.
1: What about the question might come up about, should I have both of my breasts removed? How do you help a woman decide that?
3: This is a really common question that that comes up. And it's really a very personal choice. We spend a lot of time counseling women about this choice and helping them to fight, find the right answer for them. We do know, you know, convincingly, that removing a woman's other breast does not make her live any longer. However, it will reduce her chance of getting a cancer in that breast and having to potentially go through cancer treatment. On the other hand, there are definitely downsides to having both breasts removed. It doubles the risk of surgical complications because instead of operating on one site, we're operating on two. And when the breast is removed, there's a loss of sensation in that breast. It doesn't feel normal. Even with reconstruction, we can have really great results, but they're still a substitute for the real thing. So it does lead to some change for women in their body image.
1: All right, let's talk about uh, reconstruction. How do you help a woman decide that and and what can you do and, uh, and what will the breasts look like if you do have reconstruction and if you don't?
3: Again, this is a lot of time, you know, that we spend talking to women about what their options are Uh, There are two main approaches for reconstruction. One is to do a reconstruction using implants, and the other is to do a reconstruction using her own tissue to replace the volume that is removed with the breast at the time of a mastectomy. And, you know, we recommend that she think about these things carefully. There is certainly also the option to not do any reconstruction and some women prefer that. Uh, there's less extensive surgery, potentially an easier recovery, and those women can choose to use an external prosthesis in a, in a bra after surgery. So it's, again, really a very personal choice. Uh, we spend a lot of time with women trying to help them understand these different options and find the right match for them.
1: But you can actually now move, the, remove the breast, save the nipple, and do the reconstruction, and basically all in the same operation?
3: In many cases, we can. And this is what we call nipple-sparing mastectomy, where we are able to keep the skin of the entire breast, including the skin of the nipple. We take out all of the breast tissue from underneath. And really, essentially, there are no visible scars after the surgery other than what is at the bra line and we we really have the techniques have allowed us to provide excellent cosmetic outcomes
2: is there any nerve connection or is that all severed
3: there is a loss of sensation after this surgery and the degree varies from person to person that's an area where we're still learning more about you know is there a difference based on this type of incision or that you know location of incision that maybe you know impacts that So we still have more to learn there.
2: I read an article a few years ago about the differences when it comes to reconstruction uh, with European women versus American women, which leads me to believe that there is a difference, that there must be a a huge psychological component that can and I would hope is addressed for women when they're trying to make this because they've never been in this situation before. How can they know?
3: Correct. And that is one of the reasons that we counsel women that. Maybe they don't want to remove both breasts when they're not sure yet how Mm -hmm. they would feel about it. So you can remove a breast that has cancer and leave the other one alone and think about it and and see how it goes. Uh, But again, there's no one size that fits all. It's a very uh, personal decision and a personalized discussion. If you're
1: going to use a woman's own tissue to reconstruct the breast, is that more complicated? And how do you do that?
3: It's definitely a longer surgery and it is more complicated. Um, in our practice here, we work with plastic surgeons, uh, both to do either type of reconstruction, the, both the implant approach as well as a reconstruction using their own tissue. Often that tissue is taken from a woman's belly area uh, and then moved up to fill the volume where the breast was removed. Uh, But that is a longer surgery and a longer recovery. It has the benefit that then there are no implants in the long run, and that's appealing to many women.
1: And either way, the breasts look pretty normal when you're all done.
3: Usually the breasts are gonna have a great result at the end. Um, You know, there isn't any panacea, and some women do have specific, challenging individual circumstances in which we might not be able to offer them either an implant reconstruction or vice versa. We might not be able to offer them a tissue reconstruction. But usually we can find some option for reconstruction for almost all women.
1: I know that the women who are your patients are very grateful for everything that you do. Significant advances in the surgical treatment of breast cancer, including nipple-sparing mastectomy. Breast cancer surgeon Dr. Amy Degnum, thanks so much for being with us.
2: Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, understanding a rare brain disease, progressive supranuclear palsy.
1: And treatment for cancer of the esophagus.
0: Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. After childbirth, you're likely focused on caring for that new baby, but health problems, sudden life-threatening, can happen in the weeks and months afterwards, and many aren't aware of the warning signs. Here's what you need to know about postpartum complications. A pregnancy-related death is the death of a woman while pregnant or within one year of the end of a pregnancy. More than half of the pregnancy-related deaths happen after childbirth. Now, after you have a baby, it's common to feel fatigued and discomfort, such as pain and uterine contractions. You might not know the difference between a normal recovery and the symptoms of a complication or when to seek medical care. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, some of those common causes of pregnancy-related deaths include cardiovascular diseases, pre-existing illnesses, infection or sepsis, excessive bleeding, stroke, high blood pressure, or anesthesia complications. Many postpartum complications can be successfully treated if they're identified early. So seek emergency help if you have chest pain, difficulty breathing or shortness of breath, seizures or thoughts of hurting yourself or your baby. And call your health care provider if you have bleeding, an incision that isn't healing, a red or swollen leg that's painful or warm to the touch, a temperature of 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit or 38 degrees Celsius or higher, or a headache that just doesn't get better. And talk to your health care provider about care after having a baby before that baby arrives. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, we we often hear about neurodegenerative diseases that strike the elderly, like Alzheimer's disease. But there are some less common brain diseases that affect patients in their prime of life. And one of these diseases is called progressive supranuclear palsy, or PSP. PSP affects the brain cells that control balance, walking, coordination, eye movement, speech, swallowing, thinking, almost everything.
2: There is no cure for PSP, so treatment focuses on managing the symptoms. And here to discuss PSP is the Division Chair of Behavioral Neurology at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Bradley Bove. Welcome to the program, Dr. Bove. It's nice to meet you.
4: Thank you. Likewise.
2: We
1: mentioned that it is a prime of life disease, meaning what, what's the most common age at which it strikes?
4: Mainly 40s, 50s, or 60s. So wow. indeed, prime of life.
1: And it's a, it can be a de- devastating disease.
4: It is. Uh, the uh, usual course of the illness is two to five years on average. Some shorter, uh, some uh, much longer, but it's relatively short course.
1: Average survival, less than 10 years yeah. once, once you yes. get this disease? yes.
2: And how common is it?
4: It's about as common as Lou Gehrig's disease. Uh, Most people have not heard of PSP before, but the prevalence is about the same as
1: ALS. And there are just a few thousand people who have this disease in the US, right?
4: Uh, Some would say in the uh, lower tens of thousands, but uh, relatively uncommon.
2: What does supranuclear mean?
4: It's an old term that uh, is based on the clinical features, and the eye movements are a characteristic aspect of the illness, Uh, so the inability to look down, um, also to look up, but especially to look down, and it's because of the supranuclear involvement on the nuclei that uh, control eye movements, and that's where the term came from.
1: Aren't you glad you asked?
4: I guess. Well, you mentioned
2: (laughs) Lou Gehrig's disease. How is this different? How are the two different?
4: Uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, it does affect the brain, but it's more of an issue of the, uh, the spinal cord and the nerves that go out to the muscles. So it's got central nervous system and peripheral nervous system uh, involvement. In progressive supranuclear palsy, it's a primary brain disorder, mm-hmm. and there's more Parkinson's-like features, uh, and cognition and behavior are affected far more than in ALS.
1: Isn't it sometimes difficult to tell the difference between this disease and Parkinson's? Uh,
4: it is, uh, and early on, it can be a real challenge. Uh, but the, uh, the early tendency to fall and fall repeatedly is different from typical Parkinson's disease. The eye movements are quite different. And the specific features of the Parkinsonism are different than in typical Parkinson's disease also. So uh, there are ways to differentiate, but it can be challenging early in the course.
1: And the average age of onset for Parkinson's disease significantly older? Uh, uh, at least a bit older, you know, probably uh, uh, upwards of
4: a decade older.
2: What causes it? Is it a is there family history that's involved?
4: Uh, for the most part, there isn't much of a family history. It really? can run in families, but that's extremely rare, uh, and is due to a, a, an accumulation of this protein tau. T-A-U, Tau. Parkinson's disease is alpha-synuclein, so it's a different protein. And the parts of the brain that the Tau protein misfolds and then accumulates in the neurons, they're different than in Parkinson's disease also, and that's why the clinical features are different.
1: But no idea why this Tau protein collects?
4: Uh, No. uh, It's, um, in some respects, similar to Alzheimer's disease. Tau is a critical protein in Alzheimer's disease. And so what causes that uh, protein to misfold? And why does it then uh, uh, spread into different brain regions? Uh, those aspects are still not well known.
1: Aren't there some environmental factors uh, that possibly contribute to to this disease? I'm thinking of people who lived on a farm or drank well water or mm-hmm. worked in the ag industry. Um,
4: th- that data is more consistent with Parkinson's disease. In PSP, mm-hmm. it's less clear. And hypertension has been... Um, uh, proposed as a risk factor for PSP, but high that's blood a, pressure. Uh, high blood pressure. Um, but it's um, very common. And so in very few people get PSP.
2: I, um, anyone who listens to this show for more than five minutes knows that I'm not a medical professional, but I have heard of people over the years um, being diagnosed with early onset Parkinson's disease. Do they actually have PSP?
4: Some may. Um, some people with Parkinson's disease will uh, develop symptoms in their 20s or 30s. So very, wow. very young. And PSP, that, that's very rare to be that young. It can happen, but that's distinctly. It's more 40s, 50s, 60s, and, and in some cases, 70s. So how
2: do, how is it diagnosed? Is it just uh, the symptoms?
4: Largely the symptoms. There are some other uh, features. There's no blood tests. There's no spinal fluid test. The MRI scan can show some distinctive features that if it's present, it helps the clinician uh, to support Mm -hmm. PSP, but it's largely based on clinical features.
1: Let's talk about treatment. You did mention that the average survival is less than 10 years, so I'm assuming that means that we don't have any very good treatment, but what what do you have? What is available?
4: Uh, there are several clinical trials, and perhaps we'll uh, discuss that, uh, very exciting clinical trials, uh, but Uh, The current uh, standard of care is medical management and uh, physical therapy, occupational uh, therapy, speech therapy. That's really the mainstay is uh, the non-medication approaches. Some people will benefit from cinemat which is a common medicine used in Parkinson's disease, but the response is variable. Uh, There are some other medicines that can help with symptoms, but unfortunately we don't have anything that will slow it down or halt progression. Um, In the clinical trial space, there are some anti-tau, so these are tau vaccines that are in clinical trials right now. Uh, We don't have the final results yet, but uh, uh, there's great hope that this will impact the illness?
1: In, in terms of just controlling the symptoms, or actually improving survival? Uh, improving survival, so the, the, the primary goal
4: is to show uh, uh, a slowing down of the rate of progression. Perhaps it'll halt progression and keep a person at their current level of disability, which obviously is not ideal. Um, but um, uh, if it's diagnosed early enough, it would have a huge impact. Uh, will there be improvement? That's harder to say, and we'll know in the next uh, couple of years as these uh, tr- uh, initial trials complete.
1: It's probably a difficult disease to study because it's so rare. It is. Uh, at a place
4: like Mayo Clinic, we do see a number of uh, patients that have hard-to-diagnose uh, uh, types of uh, neurologic problems, and uh, uh, with the experience I, it's usually not that difficult to establish a diagnosis, uh, but again, early on or those with atypical features, it, it can be a challenge
1: for anyone. Of the clinical trials that are going on now, which do you look most promising? The, the tau vaccines look uh, the most
4: pro, uh, promising. They're directly targeted against the abnormal protein. Um, so the design is to uh, basically neutralize the abnormal tau protein collections, especially as it goes from nerve cell to nerve cell. Uh, It's a very interesting phenomenon. Why do neurologic disorders uh, evolve or worsen? And there's um, recent data that the abnormal protein may skip from neuron to the next neuron. and It may go through the synapse or through some other mechanisms. So if antibodies can then neutralize that protein so that it can't skip from neuron to neuron, at the very least, we could slow it down or
1: halt progression. That is amazing. It is unfortunate. Dr. Brad Beauvais, Mm -hmm. the disease is PSP, progressive supranuclear palsy. Fortunately, it's rare, affecting less than 10,000 people in the United States. It does strike in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, generally younger than people with Parkinson's disease. Truly a devastating condition, but there is hope for better treatments in the future. There is. We've been talking with Dr. Brad Bovey. He's one of the world's experts on progressive supranuclear palsy, and he is division chair of behavioral neurology at Mayo Clinic. Thanks, Dr. Bovey. Thank you. Let's talk about the esophagus. The esophagus is a long, hollow tube that connects your throat with your stomach. It helps through muscle action called peristalsis to move the food you swallow down to your stomach where it can begin to be digested. Now, unfortunately, just like other organs in the body, cancer can develop in the esophagus.
2: Fortunately, though, it's relatively uncommon. And interestingly, it occurs three to four times more commonly in men than women. Now, yeah, why is that? We'll find out, I suppose. Cancer of the esophagus can be difficult to treat, but the prognosis is much better than it used to be. The five-year survival rates for esophageal cancer have quadrupled in the past few decades, Early detection of the disease is key to a positive outcome. And here to discuss esophageal cancer is Mayo Clinic thoracic surgeon, Dr. Shanda Blackman. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Blackman. It's really great to see you.
5: It's great to see you. Thanks for having me again.
1: Thanks, Dr. Blackman. An important topic. And as we mentioned, it is relatively uncommon. But I also read that for males, one out of 125 males are going to be diagnosed with esophageal cancer in their lifetime. Seems like a lot to me.
5: Correct. And we think that that has something to do with the high rate of reflux that we've seen. The incidence of this diagnosis has gone up over time, partly because we can detect it a little better, and partly because perhaps people are getting bigger and the obesity epidemic has led to more reflux, and that the reflux is somewhat related to the incidence of esophageal cancer. So, men who have a long standing history of reflux should go into their doctor and be screened right now for something called Barrett's.
1: All right, so tell us what you mean by reflux and then explain what Barrett's is.
5: So that's when the acid from your stomach comes back up into your esophagus. So if you eat a spicy meal, lay down at night, you might occasionally feel that. But if you have to take medicine to alleviate that burning in your esophagus, then that's sending your body a signal that something abnormal is happening. And if you have a terrible history of reflux and suddenly it goes away, that's even more concerning because when the lining of your esophagus changes, you become a little bit less symptomatic. So Mm -hmm. if you have five years of a history of reflux, you want to go into your doctor and get evaluated.
1: And reflux really shouldn't happen in most people because there's a valve down there to keep the contents of the stomach in the stomach, but for people where that when that valve malfunctions, then the contents of the stomach, which has a lot of acid in it, can be pushed back up into the esophagus and that causes damage to the lining of the esophagus, correct?
5: Right. People can have something called a hiatal hernia or a hernia where the, the diaphragm that comes around the esophagus opens up a little bit and some of the stomach goes up into the chest. And in that circumstance, it makes it easier for the acid to wash back up. Is acid reflux heartburn
2: and heartburn af- acid
5: reflux? Well, heartburn is when you feel that burning in okay. your chest as a result of mm-hmm. the damage that's being done from the acid. And you could have non-acid reflux. So you could have something sitting in your esophagus and not going into your stomach and then washing back up. any time you have acid reflux, that's when the most damage happens, though
2: what does that feel like when that acid comes up? Is it a burning? I mean, that's why I ask about the heartburn part of it because how can you know if that's what's going on?
5: Yeah, well, some patients present with chest pain. And when you go to the emergency department and you complain of chest pain or you go to your doctor, They're thinking in their brain, either you have really bad reflux or you have a heart problem. And the first thing they do is rule out the heart problem. But if you get that ruled out, then you need to follow up with the doctor to find out why do you have the heartburn or the reflux. Um, We treat those usually with antacid therapy, treatment with pills that get rid of the acid. People can now treat themselves over the counter but that might be a little bit of the problem is people take the medicine and the symptoms go away, but they don't follow up with the doctor. And that's a really important part of taking control of your healthcare and being proactive. If you start taking medicine for five years for this, you need to go see a doctor.
1: Is acid reflux the same as GERD?
5: It can be. It can sometimes be slightly different. Gastroesophageal reflux is usually made from acid. If you take medicine to change it, you're still having reflux, but it changes it from acid to what we call a normal acidity or a normal pH.
1: So we've pretty much covered the, the risk factors of being male, being obese, having a reflux. But what about the symptoms? How, what might suggest that you have esophageal cancer and not just reflux?
5: Well, there are different types of esophageal cancer. There's adenocarcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma, People who develop squamous cell carcinoma sometimes have a history of smoking, drinking alcohol and in some other parts of the world taking in things like pickled and smoked food. So without getting into too much detail, it's related to your diet with squamous cell and other habits that might be characterized as what we call bad habits like smoking and drinking adenocarcinoma is more likely related to problems like obesity and reflux.
1: And then uh, again, when you we were talking about reflux and we talked about the change in the lining of the lower end of the esophagus, is that what Barrett's esophagus is?
5: That is. So the normal lining of your esophagus is more like your skin on your arm, and that's called squamous. And then the lining of the stomach is something that's called columnar. And that l- stomach lining replaces the normal esophagus lining when you have chronic damage due to reflux.
1: Okay, and then you have Barrett's esophagus.
5: That's exactly what Barrett's is, yes. And if you
1: have Barrett's, are you more likely to get esophageal cancer?
5: We think you are, and you have to go under a screening program. There's a natural progression over time. Someone who has chronic damage to the esophagus over time can have different grades of Barrett's. So you can have normal Barrett's which really isn't normal. We know that. Mm -hmm. Or you could have low-grade dysplasia or you can have high-grade dysplasia. And nowadays, we have some treatment that can specifically treat those patients who have dysplasia in the esophagus. We basically use a special... Balloon that goes into the area and uses energy to get rid of that abnormal lining and help the healthy squamous lining come back.
1: And when you say dysplasia, that means the cells are abnormal, but they're not cancerous.
5: Correct. They're they're pre-cancerous. probably the precancerous. Correct.
1: Okay. And and then uh, once you suspect this, how do you make the diagnosis?
5: So usually they do a scope. So the camera goes inside the mouth. You're sedated. It passes into the esophagus and the endoscopist will look around on the inside. They'll use special lights, special stains. Sometimes they use an ultrasound to see how deep an injury into the esophageal lining might be. And then they sometimes take a biopsy or they take a sample anytime it looks abnormal. And then based on that, they'll make a decision about what kind of treatment you need.
2: What options are there?
5: So if it's dysplasia and not invasive cancer, typically we treat that with that balloon therapy. If it's invasive cancer, you want to remove it completely. So if it's a teeny tiny tumor early, we can usually go in with a scope and scoop it out, much like you might have a a mole shaved off of your arm. We go in with a special camera and special instruments and take it out and snare it. If it gets a little bit deeper, it might require... Uh, what we call endoscopic submucosal dissection. That's just a complicated word for a bigger biopsy or a bigger endoluminal treatment. However, if it gets deeper than that and goes beyond that first couple of layers and it goes especially to the muscle, then it requires Mm -hmm. surgery. Because the lymph nodes might be involved.
1: All right. So then you have to actually remove a segment of the esophagus and along with those lymph nodes, particularly if they're involved. Correct. And does uh, chemotherapy and radiation ever play a role?
5: Yes, they do. Um, If you have squamous cell cancer that's invading the upper, typically upper part of your esophagus, we sometimes treat squamous cell just with chemotherapy and radiotherapy, typically together. If you have adenocarcinoma, which is more more often in the lower part of your esophagus, we treat that mostly, if it's advanced, locally advanced, to the lymph nodes, then we will treat that with chemotherapy, with or without radiation, and then with surgery, and then follow-up.
1: So then the treatment depends on the type of cancer that you have and the extent.
5: Yeah, and all that summarized is what your stage is.
1: All right, and finally, give us some... uh, Preventive tips: uh, If you've got some of these risk factors, what can you do to hopefully not be, get esophageal cancer?
5: Well, you can get the Mayo Clinic Healthy Lifestyle book. Don't smoke. Don't drink. Exercise daily. Try not to become obese. Try to have healthy food habits, which means sometimes if you have a procl- if you're if you're likely to have reflux, stay away from minty things chocolate pretty much anything that's good Uh, spicy food some of those things make the reflux worse if you've had reflux for five years be proactive go see your doctor let them know don't wait until you can't swallow because dysphagia or the having trouble swallowing is the first sign that you might have a tumor in your esophagus.
1: Well, it's a relatively uncommon but serious disease. But the good news is the prognosis is much better than it used to be.
5: And we have minimally invasive ways to take that esophagus out if you need to have surgery. So it's a kinder, gentler treatment if you get it.
1: All right, esophageal cancer with thoracic chest surgeon Dr. Shanda Blackman. Thanks so much for being with us.
5: Thank you. It was a pleasure. And that's our program for this week.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
2: And I'm Tracy
0: McCrae.
1: Thanks for joining us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please.